millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The quad is only a stepping stone. Like all of these minilaterals, they are only stepping stones to something else. All it really boils down to at one level is four fairly senior officials meeting in a room for about 45 minutes to an hour every now and then. We need the Quad as a way to access India. A prosperous China is welcome, but we don't welcome a China that tries to change the status quo by force. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And I am back after a little bit of a break and it almost seems in that time that the world has shifted to another act in this almighty play of drama, politics and national security. None of us are left in shock as the Bolton prophecies are proving true and the US is starting to ramp up in the Persian Gulf again in a very strange and discombobulated fashion. The EU Parliament has begun vacating the centre for a bifurcated representation of the left and the right. Australia saw its recent federal election results kind of mirroring what happened to the US in the 2016 presidential election where the cities voted for a more left-leaning progressive parliament and the rural areas and outer suburbs voted for a more conservative right-leaning government. And the trade war between the US and China has been upped another notch. Huawei has taken another blow and Prime Minister Modi has been re-elected in India whilst the United States has been stepping up its freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea and we are all discussing Chinese aircraft coming closer to Taiwan whilst US naval vessels transit the Taiwan Straits more regularly than in recent years. It has been action aplenty and a lot of what we've just been discussing is actually going to be framing what we're talking about in today's National Security Podcast. We, that being the National Security College here, uh, recently hosted an in-house conference on the Indo-Pacific and the confluence of strategies across the region. Uh, Basically, it was a discussion with people from across the Indo-Pacific about how the Indo-Pacific as a concept has been translating international strategies, where the challenges are emerging along with the opportunities for cooperation and shared approaches. To give a little bit of context to what we discussed, since the concept of the Indo-Pacific emerged as part of the mainstream 
consciousness and dialogue in around about 2013, numerous regional actors have announced formal and implied Indo-Pacific strategies. Japan and the US have their free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. India has its Act East policy. China has its Belt and Road Initiative. And Australia's recent foreign policy white paper focused on the Indo-Pacific. And Indonesia has its Indo-Pacific cooperation concept. One of the ways these strategies are being implemented is by nations coming together in minilaterals. And for non-policy nerds, a minilateral is the smaller version of the multilateral organisation or arrangement, which typically has a majority of nations represented in the particular region, uh, such as uh, in Southeast Asia, you've got ASEAN. For Africa, you've got the African Union. And for the entire world, you've got the United Nations. Uh, The most well-known of these minilaterals is the Quad. Quad is shorthand for the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which brings together Australia, the United States, Japan and India, four modern liberal democratic countries. The Quad emerged out of the response to the 2004 Boxing Day earthquake and tsunami that affected much of the Indian Ocean region and was based around some of the uh, ad hoc cooperation between the nations responding to this humanitarian disaster. The first informal meeting of the Quad occurred in 2007 on the sidelines of the ASEAN Regional Forum, which was followed by naval exercises. Feeling threatened by what it saw as a nascent move to contain its expansion throughout the region, China lashed out and had a bit of a whinge. And in 2008, as the smallest of the Quad countries with significant trade ties to China, Australia got cold feet and wussed out of the whole thing. That's my interpretation of events. Yours may differ. Since 2008, the Chinese government has undertaken massive land reclamation projects in the South China Sea, which have since been militarised, breaking public commitments from the Chinese government not to do exactly that. The Chinese government has developed the Maritime Militia, which is a vast fleet of civilian fishing vessels, which are being equipped and trained and quite probably directed by the Chinese government as a proxy force for the People's Liberation Army Navy. We've seen similar actions in the East China Sea, along with the unilateral establishment of an air defence identification zone over disputed territories. We've also witnessed increased economic behaviour in the Indo-Pacific from China. Some of this has been welcomed, such as investment in critical national infrastructure for developing countries who really need this kind of investment to help their economies grow. We've also seen some economic behaviour that has been less welcome, such as uh, elements of what's been called debt trap diplomacy, which looks to be uh, organically emerging out of a wider regional investment initiative. There's also been some direct economic coercion in places like South Korea in response to legitimate acts of self-defense against China's ally, which I place in air quotes, North Korea. Again, these are my interpretations of events. Yours may differ. Unsurprisingly, this has seen many other regional actors shift their posture to adjust for a more active China. Uh, Some of that adjustment has been in the form of increased economic ties in terms of trade and investment. It's also seen invitations to participate in military exercises and visits from heads of state. 
although some of that adjustment has been more defensive in nature as well, such as increased spending on an acquisition of strategic military platforms like submarines, amphibious battleships, or the blocking of investment in critical national infrastructure such as communications infrastructure. Another area has been the reinvigoration of the Quad and the emergence of Australia's diplomatic backbone. And today on the National Security Podcast, we are bringing you the Quad Pod. We have four of the presenters from our recent Indo-Pacific conference that are representing the thinking from each of the Quad nations. Speaking from the American perspective, we have Dr. Zach Cooper, who is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies US defense strategy in Asia. Dr. Cooper is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Georgetown University and an associate with Armitage International. He previously served on staff at the Pentagon and in the White House, uh, as well as the Center for Strategic International Studies and the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. And representing Japan, we have Associate Professor Kyoko Hatakiyama. Kyoko is an Associate Professor at Kanzai University in Japan, teaching international relations and foreign policy. Prior to this, Professor Hatakiyama served as a research analyst responsible for security situations in Asia and Europe at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Japan. And fighting out of the Indian corner, we have Professor Ian Hall from the School of Government and International Relations at Griffith University. He is also the Deputy Director for Research at the Griffith Asia Institute, and he is the co-editor of the Australian Journal of International Affairs and an academic fellow at the Australia India Institute. And a quick plug for Ian, his book on Modi and the reinvention of Indian foreign policy will be published later this year. And in the Australian corner, we have Professor Rory Medcalf, who is the head of the National Security College here at the ANU. He has previously been at the Lowy Institute, a think tank in Sydney, Australia. And previous to this, Rory served as an Australian public servant. He has been a diplomat to two of the four quad countries, Japan and India. And he has also served as an intelligence analyst at the Office of National Assessments. And with that, let's get ready to rumble on the National Security Quad Pod. G'day everyone. Thanks very much for being part of the National Security Podcast. Let's start off with you, Professor Rory Medcalf. Can you lay a bit of a foundation for us and can you tell us what the Quad is what it is not, and possibly what it should be. So we're talking about the quadrilateral security dialogue uh, of uh, the United States, Japan, India, and Australia. And there's a huge amount of mythology about what this is. But all it really boils down to uh, at one level is four fairly senior officials meeting in a room for about 45 minutes to an hour uh, every now and then, perhaps every six months as, as it's been spaced out over the last couple of years. Ultimately, this is a meeting. It's been imbued, though, with all sorts of strategic and political symbolism. Uh, it's, either a, it's either been demonised and vilified as a kind of, you know, a NATO that's out to ultimately contain and destroy China, or on the other hand, it's been criticised for being 
really quite limp and ineffectual and only as strong as its weakest link at any one time. So I'm hoping in this conversation we can cut through some of that mythology to talk about what the quad is, why it matters, but what its limits are and where it's going. Can I ask you, Kyoko, how, how does Japan view the quad and what drives Japan to be part of a grouping such as this? Uh, actually, I think Japan's drive for quad lies in serious concerns about China's rise. A prosperous China is welcome, but we don't welcome a China that tries to change the status quo by force. Actually, Japan had long supported China's economic development by providing massive amount of aid, which amounts to $30 billion in the past. So Japan hoped to create a prosperous Asia. However, contrary to Japan's expectation, China is rising military as well. Unfortunately, Japan's economy was surpassed by China in 2010, and Japan's military power is quite constrained. So the left option for Japan is to pursue non-based diplomacy and create a group of like-minded states to put pressure on China. So this attempt does not aim to isolate China. As I said, prosperous and benign China is welcome for Japan. So, However, we have to do demonstrate a rejection of China's unilateral behavior. That is our drive. And Zach, how has America's approach to the pod shifted under President Trump compared to President Obama? Well, I think President Trump's team initially saw the Quad as one of the key elements of their new Indo-Pacific strategy. And in fact, in many ways, my view is that the Quad seemed to almost uh, overtake the Indo-Pacific strategy in the first year or so of the administration, in part because the administration had this had adopted the free and open Indo-Pacific language from Japan, uh, but didn't really have a lot of details about how it was going to implement the strategy. And the one new element was the Quad. And so the Quad, for many people, in my view, became conflated with the administration's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think part of the challenge there is that it made the expectations of the Quad unrealistic. Uh, just real, the ability to get changes out of the Quad quickly are limited. They've had three meetings now. But at the end of the day, India is only going to move so fast. Australia also has some concerns. And so I think uh, we have to be realistic about how much the Quad is able to do and really place it in a larger context of a broader regional strategy and make the Quad useful on the issues that it is most uh, capable of addressing. And in America's view, what do you think are those issues that America would like it to be most capable in addressing? Well, I think, I think the Quad has an important role as four major democracies and upholders of rules and norms in the region. Uh, and so I think that is a critical element that is badly needed in the region. I don't think the Quad as a military tool is going to be that effective. And you saw this, uh, this echoed by Admiral Davidson, the commander of Indo-Pacific Command, just a few weeks ago in Singapore, where he said there really isn't a military element to the Quad at this moment, which doesn't mean that there might not be in the future, but it's just to say that right now, I think the Quad is incredibly useful as a messaging device to reinforce the rules and norms. But as an operational uh, coordination body, I don't think we're there yet. 
Right. We recently saw it at, at the, the most recent Rycena Dialogue, which is essentially the, the largest strategic dialogue for the Indian Ocean region. We saw admirals from all four nations sitting on a panel together, and there was a fairly broad agreement that uh, China's behaviour in the region was a, a force for uh, instability. Is Was that deliberate messaging? And how do you think that that kind of messaging is accepted by China? And this is a question for anyone at the table. I might jump in on that, Chris. Um, I'm also very keen to hear uh, Ian's view as the uh, the, on, the honorary uh, India specialist in the room. But um, I was at the Rysena Dialogue in January 2018 when the four Quad Admirals got on stage and delivered fairly clear messages. And um, of course, um, a year later, there were other senior military officers, again, from the four countries taking a common stage to air uh, convergent messages on China. Now, I saw those moments as reasonably historic because you were seeing a willingness to put a military face on the quad. That is not the same as leaping right in with uh, combined exercises or hardcore intelligence sharing or operations or anything like that. Uh, But nonetheless, it shows a willingness to make the quad more than simply what it has been, which is four civilian officials sitting in a room. It shows a willingness to take the stage on the quad. And I think it also sets a context, which is really important for activities that groups of two or three among those four countries actually uh, carry out that are more substantial. And so, for example, you know, right now we're seeing Australia and India conducting uh, their latest uh, bilateral naval exercise with submarine and anti-submarine warfare capabilities. That's an extraordinarily big step uh, in trust for those two countries. We're seeing the United States and Japan with um, you know, their very long-standing alliance, Australia and the United States with theirs, Australia and Japan, trilateral security cooperation among Australia, the United States and Japan with military exercises, and high-level diplomatic dialogues among every other triangle of those countries. So I think one of the great uh, achievements of the Quad is not actually the the front that it puts on of the four admirals or the four civilian officials sitting in a room on the margins of an ASEAN regional forum. It's actually that the Quad is making the world safe for trilateralism. And if I were China, I'd be much more worried about trilateral security cooperation among these groups of quad countries than the almost the um, the false front or the lightning rod that is that is the quad. So you're using trilateral as another way of saying minilateral. Is that is well, that I mean, minilateral. The quad is a minilateral. I mean, to my mind, a minilateral is anything that's larger than two, mm-hmm. uh, but smaller than many, or smaller than a um, a fully inclusive regional organisation. So as Australia's foreign policy white paper says, small groups, small self-selecting groups. The Quad is one of those, but it's just one piece of the puzzle. So I'm a supporter of the Quad, but never for a moment would I say that the Quad is the answer to all our strategic problems or that it embodies an Indo-Pacific strategy for the four countries. Now, Ian, whilst this uh, messaging did come out of Rysena Dialogue, India comes from a non-alignment pedigree, which has now evolved into strategic autonomy. How does this uh, uh, approach shape India's view of the Quad, and how does India's view of the Quad and approach to it differ from the other three countries? Well, I mean, I take a sort of slightly different view to to some commentators on India, and I think it's important that those four admirals sat there in Delhi. So we often think about India being the slowest moving, mm. and some people talk about India being the weakest member of the Quad, and so on, uh, or the some, least committed. Some say Australia it's, is. It's an interesting uh, contest. I, I might head in that direction myself, but you know, some some point the finger at India, and yet 
it was in Delhi that that signaling was going on. Um, and and that's quite important. The big there have been a couple of big shifts in in Narendra Modi's foreign policy since he came to power in 2014. One of the the really significant ones is the strengthening of the relationship with the United States. Initially with Barack Obama, and then afterwards, after some with some trepidation, I have to say, with Donald Trump as well, and the strengthening of the defense relationship between the two sides. Great groundwork that's been done by the Pentagon on that. Uh, it's quite clear that they've reached out and reassured New Delhi uh, after their kind of worries about after Trump's election. Uh, but also, the Delhi's been very receptive too. So going back to your question, yes, India was once non-aligned. Non-alignment, though, meant taking stands on particular issues uh, and not being permanently allied to one side or another. So India was willing to, he just wanted a free hand to take sides, if you like. Um, strategic autonomy emerged as the catchphrase during the during the, the 2000s and through into 20, 2014. But notably, Modi has only ever used the words strategic autonomy once in the Shangri-La speech that he gave in 2018, and only in the context of relations with Russia. Modi's moved beyond strategic autonomy, actually, and this engagement of the Quad, the building of much closer relationship with the United States, but also particularly with Japan and with Australia, signals a shift towards a much more proactive uh, India in the region. Now, Kyoko, you mentioned China a lot in in your opening remarks. Um, now, as you said, we everybody welcomes a a large China in the world, but we're we're kind of hoping that it's going to fit into the the common structures that we have now and the architecture we have now. Would this quad exist without China? Is China the driving force behind the quad, or are there other goals that the quad could aim at? I don't think so. It wouldn't exist. If China was a prosperous and, uh, you know, very benign power, uh, we actually don't have to create a quad. However, according Contrary to our expectation, China is not. So that's why we have to push our value and the norms so that China wouldn't change the world. Otherwise, you know, sitting back and relaxing and watching what China is doing actually creates a different, you know, rules and the norms, which is quite unfavorable for Japan and for actually other countries as well, for Australia, India, and the United States. So we really have to stop it. That's why Abe actually uh, proposed uh, this idea. Actually, he, and exactly speaking, Foreign Minister Taro Aso, he proposed the idea of uh, arc of freedom of prosperity. However, that idea did not gain momentum and disappeared internationally and domestically because Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Because the timing was a bit too early, but now, you know, Quad, and at the time, you, you know, Quad meeting was held only once, but Australia left the Quad meeting. But now it came back because uh, of, you know, China's unilateral action. 
So just uh, we've mentioned Australia a couple of times here and we do have a very strong awareness in this country that it was our Prime Minister that uh, removed himself or removed the country from uh, some of the identity of the Quad and that that has created a, a little bit of a tension, especially between Australia and India. Ian, is that tension still there or is that starting to move into the past? Can we leave that in the past or do we still have to be very conscious of that when Australia approaches uh, its strategy making and policy making? Look, I don't think that tension is still there. Both New Delhi and Canberra understand each other so much better than they did a, a decade ago. Uh, they have a much more sophisticated understanding of party politics in both both sides. Uh, and I don't think that, you know, I think we, it's a relationship now that can, can ride out um, some misunderstandings and so on. That said... Um, in India, people have long memories and history matters in a way that perhaps it doesn't in other places. And so occasionally you'll find analysts pointing to what happened in 2008 when Stephen Smith announced that Australia wasn't going to participate anymore. They'll point to it and say, well, uh, you know, we don't want to be involved. We don't want Australia involved in Malabar right now. And they might point to that as an excuse. But I don't think that in amongst policymakers, that's any more a consideration. Well, I'm going to jump in there if you, before we get to Malabar, um, because uh, we're going over some familiar territory, but we, we do need to really, I think, um, you know, demythologize this, if you like. Um, so I'd agree with Ian that the, the bad blood about Australia's, uh, not so much withdrawal from the Quad, but our indication in 2000 and Eight, that we wouldn't be doing it again, which is basically the words Stephen Smith used, and the really unfortunate optics of doing that during a visit by a Chinese foreign minister. Um, look, that did lasting damage. I think the damage has uh, mostly been undone, almost completely been undone, or has been repaired, I should say. Um, we have to remember that back in 2008, everyone actually had cold feet about the quad. It wasn't just Australia. It's just that Australia took the first move. Um, and it's important to know that, that Stephen Smith, uh, and Stephen, if you're listening, um, Steve, and Stephen Smith uh, you know, has a real stature as a former uh, foreign minister, a former defence minister, and a strong voice in favour of the Indo-Pacific, uh, looking out from Perth. He himself, speaking at Ricina this year, uh, was, I think, very much in favour of the, the return of the Quad. The Times now suit the Quad. Uh, and so I think if you look at the Australian landscape now, you see that the Labor Party um, has made it very clear publicly that they support the Quad as part of their um, their Indo-Pacific policy. And the Labor Party clearly supports the Indo-Pacific as well, which is a bipartisan consensus in Australia, that Labor doesn't want to see the Quad hasten to being a military alliance or to a leaders level meeting. But that wasn't going to happen anyway. So in fact, we're in a pretty strong position now in Australian support for the Quad. And if anything, Australia and India have to get over this this unfortunate game of the last 10 years or so of each thinking the other one is going to be the weak link. Um, we have to reinforce each other's confidence and solidarity on this issue. Hmm. Now, Zach, we spoke before about what uh, America's aims might be in terms of viewing the Quad and regional strategies. Um, each of these countries shares not only different geographies, but also different cultures and different economic interests. Where can you see that the tension are between these four countries that priorities may differ? Well, I think the core tension is over perceptions of China and, and specifically over risk perceptions. Uh, so I think the United States and Japan basically share a lot of the same views, uh, high levels of concern about China, uh, a proximity to China that is a little bit different from Australia. 
uh, and a level of concern that's different from what we see today in India, in my view. Um, and I think for Japan, this is because the East China Sea is a daily uh, concern and there are never-ending uh, challenges in the East China Sea by the Chinese Coast Guard, by the Chinese military, and for the United States because we've now labeled China a great power competitor. Um, and so China for Japan and the United States is really a tier one challenge, and there's nothing close to it for either of our countries. I think you know the reality is just the geography is different for Australia. Uh, you are just a lot further away down here. Um, or further away from what? From China. Uh, <laughs> yes and no. And, and even and <laughs> the even, United Front might see different. <laughs> <laughs> but even from you know some of the most contentious areas, right? You know Taiwan, South China Sea. It's it's not uh, forever away, but it is much more distant than if you're sitting in Okinawa. Yeah. Uh, whether you're a Japanese uh, military officer or an American Marine, uh, China feels quite close to there. And I think the Indians, uh, you know, Ian and Rory know this much better than I do. I think the Indians uh, are having a change in their threat perception, but it's still nowhere near the level that we, the level of concern we see from Washington and from Tokyo. And we, we brought up the East China Sea. So Kyoko, I'm just wondering if you think that there are any lessons for some of the other regional countries, whether that be Vietnam or South Korea or Indonesia. Are there any lessons for these countries that they can take from what they see happening with the Quad? Actually, yes. Uh... What we are doing at the moment is just to stop China's moves and coming into the violation of territorial waters. And once it, a military conflict happens, that might lead to a disaster. So we have to stop it. And everybody, nobody wants to have a military conflict with China and China as well. So what we can do is just stop China's violation of or trespassing into territorial waters before something happens. So what can, so, However, for example, Southeast Asian countries do not have enough power to stop it, do not have enough Coast Guard power to stop it. So they don't have even, you know, a sufficient patrol vessels to far out to sea. So what we can do or what they have to do is strengthen the, you know, Coast Guard agency's capacity to patrol the area so that they could stop just, you know, before something happens. Right, and so I'm going to wrap up with a question with a question for all of you, and I'd like a response from each of you. I'd like you to get out your crystal balls and have a bit of a gaze in them, and tell me what you see as the most plausible future for the Quad, say out for about ten years, and not just considering the countries in the Quad, but also the countries in the region that are impacted by the great powers. Can I, I'll go first, Chris. I um, and I'll address a few other thoughts that I think are really important on this subject. Look, firstly, um, you know the Quad is part of the answer to balancing and managing Chinese power, but only only one piece of the puzzle. Secondly, uh, it's good that you mention the other countries in the Indo-Pacific, because I think one of the perception challenges that Quad members have is to reassure those countries, particularly the Southeast Asians, the ASEAN countries, that this is not an alternative to ASEAN. It's not 
bypassing ASEAN uh, in managing security challenges. It's an additional layer. It's it's a complement to ASEAN. In fact, it's quite useful for those countries to know that on the margins of an ASEAN regional forum meeting, there are four friends of regional stability who are discussing ways in which they can help. Um, and, and so I'd like to see the Quad continue to, and, and this is not just uh, a, a prescription, I think it's an assessment. I'd like to see the Quad, and I think I will see the Quad, deepen the sharing of strategic assessments uh, among those four countries so that they can coordinate their policies so that the four countries can, for example, um, ensure that they deconflict and uh, assist each other's capacity building. I think uh, Kyoko correctly mentioned the uh, the limitations of the maritime security capabilities of our Southeast Asian friends. Well, Quad countries all have capacity to help build that up, but let's not trip over each other. Let's coordinate on that. I um, I see no reason why the Quad can't from time to time engage uh, additional countries, not as formal members, because it's not actually an, a formal club anyway, but why you can't see uh, informal Quad plus conversations occurring, uh, or subsets of the Quad, trilaterals of the Quad, engaging with countries like Indonesia or Singapore or South Korea or even the Europeans for that matter, uh, in contributing to regional order. And look, last of all, I think that um, the the Quad will evolve according to China's choices. So if you take a 10-year time frame a lot depends on China. Now, if uh, we had a transformed regional order where uh, China chose to be, if you like, fully incorporated as a partner according to rules mutually agreed, respecting the rights and interests of small countries, et cetera, et cetera, uh, there would be a lot less need for something like the Quad or any other balancing arrangements. On the other hand, if we see strategic competition and confrontation worsening, then we can begin to think about whether in fact the bilateral and trilateral military coordination by Quad countries could evolve into something um, a little bit a little bit sharper. Uh, but it's a long a long way to go. Um, and, and noting also that where Quad countries coordinate operationally, it could well be on non-strategic or non uh, I guess high-end military activities. I mean. Let's remember that the very first Quad activity happened uh, years before the first Quad meeting, and that was the core group of disaster responders to the terrible uh, tsunami uh, in 2004. India? (laughs) You're so deep an expert on India (laughs) that we're denying. Just to note, Chris, I hope you're recording this, that you've got to give somewhere uh, a free plug for Ian Hall for his fantastic new book on uh, Modi's foreign policy that's coming out. Absolutely. Now, thanks, thanks Rory. D- dipping into the expertise that you used to write that book, from India's perspective, how do you see the next 10 years in the Quad, Ian? So, I mean, let me let me just back away from the India question for a minute and just think about think about what my perspective would be. I mean, in in both ideal scenarios that I could imagine, the Quad wouldn't exist. So on the one hand, the China changes its behavior and that we don't need to have this kind of interaction with the four powers. That's a good option. The other good 
possible scenario is that the quad doesn't exist because the quad has done what it was supposed to do, which is to identify a whole range of areas in which there could be bilateral, trilateral, multilateral, uh, and minilateral cooperation across a whole range of different things, whether that's kind of building up maritime capacity, coast guards, maritime awareness, so on and so forth, whether it's intelligence sharing, whether it's a whole range of different things that is on the quad agenda every time the quad has met. Um, the quad is only a stepping stone. Like all of these minilaterals, they are only stepping stones to something else. And what I would hope is that we've gone beyond that stepping stone and instead what we've done is we've institutionalized cooperation across a whole range of different areas in lots of different ways, uh, ideally in some sort of multilateral setting, but perhaps that won't happen. From an Indian point of view, I mean, India under its present government, I think even under possible... Uh, iterations of governments after that, uh, the Quad is useful because the Quad allows them to signal to China that it's dissatisfaction with China's behavior uh, and also to have the kind of high-level dialogue that, that, of course, that any serious power in the region that has aspirations and ambitions and concerns uh, would want to have with those other partners. Um, so so India, I think, is, is, very pos- is positive about the Quad. Um, it doesn't want to make too much of it, doesn't want to exaggerate its capabilities or what it might do. Um, but I can't see India backing away from the Quad without some very significant change in Indian foreign policy. Those happen, by the way. Um, so I'll warn about that. <laughs> but I, I, w- I don't think India is going to walk away at any time soon. So, Kyoko, h- how do you see uh, the Quad impacting Japan's security policy over the next 10 years? Actually, Japan, uh, as you know, as I said, uh, Japan hopes to you know con- keep it alive and wants to deepen the relationship with other countries in court. However, um, actually, I'm not sure if we can revive or we can maintain the strong relationship in the form of quote, because as Zach pointed out, Japan is quite close to China, so we have a very strong we feel. You know, China's threat. However, regarding Australia and India, they are far away from China. So they have a very different perception towards China. And also economic issues matters. Um, for example, in Australia or for India, uh, economic issues may come first. You know, at the moment, uh, they actually put first priority on rule-based order and that sort of things. However, if something happens, like economic crisis or a Lehman shock or something like that happens, they might shift their policy to, you know, by focusing on economic issues more. And in that case, they might need Chinese economic power. So I am not sure if we could maintain a very strong quote. However, if we could maintain the quote meeting, you know, annually or deepen the cooperation, that would actually uh, ensure all Japanese, you know, it's okay and maybe we can, not confront, sorry, we can engage with China with the support from other countries. That's an interesting point to bear in mind that sometimes, in fact, many laterals uh, help countries have the confidence to engage with China. Um, you know, perhaps China, uh, heaven forbid, should actually be grateful for the minilaterals. Now, that's a really interesting point. Mm-hmm. Now, Rory, I've, I've seen you um, maybe shifting your chair a little bit sometimes when it's been mentioned that Australia is quite far away from China. From Australia's perspective, do you think that, that, that we may experience China's rise differently than it's perceived in the region? Oh, well, look, I think distance isn't the only metric of being close to China in the sense that um, you're affected by China 
Chinese power. And so, uh, well, I, mean, I, I think I totally agree with Kyoko that Japan's uh, you know, disputed maritime proximity to China um, makes things really, really tough for Japan, and and and, and I think the deliberate demonisation of Japan in China makes it worse. Um, India's got uh, the border dispute with China, so although in a maritime sense India isn't close, in a land sense it's right there. Um, but for Australia, uh, look, if you think about the, and we've talked about this on separate occasions, if you think about the uh, the scale of the economic relationship, the trade relationship, not investment, uh, the scale of the people-to-people relationship, which has all sorts of positives about it, but also uh, contributes to risks around, uh, I guess, uh, the foreign influence challenge. And then if you look at China's behaviour in the region, I mean, in a way, China is where it is, Australia is where it is, but the behaviour of the People's Liberation Army Navy, uh, the presence of Chinese investment, infrastructure, influence and coercion through the Belt and Road, China is now in Australia's neighbourhood in the South Pacific, in the Indian Ocean, in Southeast Asia. Um, So I don't think the Australian security establishment sees Australia as being far away from China anymore. And and that's another reason why the Quad is an important bipartisan piece of Australian foreign policy. Mm. Can I add one more thing? Uh, Another reason that Mm. Quad is important is, for example, just just think about the history. Japan invaded other countries and China as well. And we have a dispute over the Senkaku Island with China. If Japan pushes, you know, uh, the non-based diplomacy or whatever strategy, China would say, oh, Japan is trying to uh, invade China or try to, you know, expand its influence in Asia and try to uh, dominate Asia like before. So it's a kind of revival of Japan's militarization, something like that. Uh, even though, of, of course, as you see, Japan actually was reborn as a peaceful power and we have no intention to invade others anymore or rise military anymore. So to stop China's argument, we need Australia or India because if Australia or India or quote support Japan's argument, that actually looks Japan's argument more legitimate. So we need legitimacy to pursue this diplomacy and to do that we need quote or Australia or India or US support. Otherwise, if we keep saying by ourselves, that seems like okay, Japan is again trying to It's gonna be know, a lot more yeah, exactly. in the region. Yeah. Solidarity. Exactly. Yeah. So Zach, we're going to leave the final comment to you. How do you think the Quad is going to play into America's approach to the Indo Pacific and its national security strategies? My my view is that the Quad really has two core purposes from the U.S. point of view. The first is to have a way to show Beijing that if it takes overly assertive or aggressive actions, that the region will, to some degree, band together. Um, And I think in that sense, it... The Quad is not necessarily the body that needs to do that. In in fact, you might broaden the Quad over time, and that might be a stronger signal to Beijing that its actions are somewhat out of line with existing rules and norms. So so in one sense, I think uh, you could imagine the Quad transforming into something larger, more inclusive, and that would be a positive uh, aspect. 
The second purpose, in my view, of the Quad from an American point of view is really to bring India into the game much more actively. The U.S. doesn't need the Quad to get Japan on side. You know, the U.S.-Japan alliance is strong. We don't need the Quad to keep the U.S.-Australia relationship alive. The U.S.-Australia alliance is strong. We need the Quad as a way to access India through different channels. And I think if in 10 years you saw an India that was stronger, that was more confident, and was asserting itself more actively on the world stage, that would be a good thing for the United States, even if India wasn't always supporting U.S. positions. But just actually to make a more multipolar system with countries like India that are democracies that are standing up for the rules and norms themselves. And so I think maybe in 10 years, uh, even if the Quad doesn't exist, you could imagine a broadened group of countries pushing back against violations of rules and norms. You could imagine a more confident and strong India uh, supporting uh, those other smaller countries in their efforts to maintain the regional order. And I think from an American point of view, that would look like success. Well, that's been a fantastic discussion. So I'd like to say thank you to Zach, Kyoko, Rory and Ian for joining us on the National Security Quad podcast. Quad pod. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you very much to Associate Professor Kyoko Hatakiyama, Dr. Ian Hall, Dr. Zach Cooper and Professor Rory Medkar for joining us on the National Security Podcast special of the Quad Pod. And thank you very much for listening. We are pretty keen to hear your thoughts on the discussion. Do you have Quad in your life? Is Quad going to save us? Tell us what you think about the quadrilateral security dialogue. Is it actually a nascent attempt to contain China? Is this a new version of international cooperation in terms of minilaterals? Do you see a future for the Quad or is the Quad just another talking shop which will be exposed for the paper tiger that it is? Let us know your thoughts. You can hit us up on Twitter using Apps Policy Forum. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod or drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. Thanks very much for listening and we will be back soon with another national security podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.